Today we're going back to our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to find your place in, in your Bible there. If you're joining us for the very first time as we are in this study, this is message number 24. What that says to you is we have been 24 weeks thus far this year studying from 1 Corinthians, and we have arrived at the 11th chapter. And we're going to be looking at the first half of this chapter. The second half of this chapter has to do with the observance of communion and the Lord's Supper. I have preached from that passage on numerous occasions over the years. I reference it almost every time we observe communion. And I'll probably not speak from that second part of this chapter. But then we move into chapters 12, 13, and 14 that have to do with spiritual gifts and you get into chapter 15 that has to do with the resurrection, and then you come to chapter 16, which brings the book to a close. And so in the coming weeks, my point is we're moving toward the conclusion of this series uh, as uh, we come to chapter 11 to t today. If you don't know much about this particular study that we've been in, let me take a moment and tell you that the Corinthians had written a letter to the Apostle Paul. And they had asked him some questions about problems that they were having in the church. And Paul pens this letter, obviously, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he answers those questions as well as give it advice on other matters uh, that he had heard about that were going on in the city of Corinth and in the church at Corinth. If you've never read this book through, you've never studied this book, maybe you don't know it. But Corinth is a church that's messed up. Uh, Corinth is a church that's in confusion. Uh, Corinth is a church that has all kinds of problems everywhere. And may I just stop for a moment as we begin today and just remind you that all churches have problems. And all churches sometimes have confusion because all churches are made up of people. And people sometimes have confusion. And people oftentimes have problems, and there aren't any of us who have arrived, and none of us who are perfect. And the Apostle Paul never, in the writing of this letter to the Corinthians, says, just go find you another place. There wasn't any other place. But besides that, it wasn't just go find another place. It was set in order the things that are out of place. And so he writes this letter to help them to know how they should respond to these different matters and these different issues. And we have arrived at a passage of Scripture that when you preach it, it's almost like a death wish. Think about that for a moment. It's almost like a death wish for a pastor. And the reason is because it's going to be controversial. And it's going to be controversial because it is the opposite of what our society says. And when you read through this in a few moments with me, you're going to, some of you sit up, your ears are going to stand up, and you're going to say, wow, I can't believe God would expect this of me. But I want to remind you that this is black and white. This is black ink on white paper. This is the word of the living God. This is the inspired scripture that's been delivered to us. And our responsibility as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is not to live according to the wisdom of the world. Our responsibility as believers in Jesus Christ is to live according to the wisdom of God. 
And the wisdom of God is found throughout the scriptures, and it's found even in what might be considered a controversial passage. So controversial is this passage that you will find Christians that are constantly doing mental gymnastics in order to interpret it differently than what it says, to make it come to a different meaning than it's actually given. And they will do all kinds of mental gymnastics and jump through all kinds of hoops to try to ignore what this particular text has to say. But but let me begin by saying that you are unwise to ever ignore what the text of Scripture has to say. Whether you understand it or you don't understand it, whether you like it or you don't like it, you are always unwise to ignore Uh, The teaching of the Word of God, it always leads on a pathway that's unpleasant. It may look pleasant at the beginning, but it always ends in an unpleasant place. So what are we talking about today? We're going to be talking about headship and submission. And we're going to be talking about it in the realm of the church specifically. And it's translated over in the book of Ephesians even into the home. And I want you to think through these first 16 verses with me. And we're going to read through the text. I'm going to make some comments along the way. And then I'm going to zoom out. And we're going to get three major points that I want to make sure everybody goes home with today and some specific applications that are important for all of us. We begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. The Apostle Paul writes, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Let's stop here for a moment. When he talks here about traditions, he's not just talking about customs that can be changed. He's not talking about methods that sometimes change. This particular word for traditions means something that's handed from one person to another, but he's talking specifically about the truth that he's been communicating to them, the the, the doctrine of the apostles that he's been teaching them. Uh, A little later here, you'll see the tradition related to the Lord's Supper. That's a truth that was delivered. In chapters 12 to 14, the truth that's related to the body of Christ that he calls a tradition, or it's translated here as tradition. Uh, In chapter 15, it's the truth about the resurrection that Christ rose from the grave and all of God's children will one day rise from the grave. And so when he says here that he's happy that they have kept the traditions, he's not just talking about customs. He's not just talking about methods that can be adjusted and changed in different societies and in different settings. He's talking about the specific truths that are found in the word of God that he's been preaching and that he's been teaching and they have accepted them. And they have sought to hold on to them. And they have sought to maintain purity toward them. But having said that, I want to take a moment. And I want to tell you as a church from the wisdom of a pastor of 65 years of age that tradition, even when it's not the truth itself, especially when it's not the truth itself, tradition where it is some custom or where it is some particular method that sometimes can be changed, tradition is not always a bad thing. We in our churches have decided to throw out every tradition 
We want all traditions to go away. We want to be completely new. We want to do something different than anybody else is doing. And in the process, we throw out traditions, not the truth necessarily. We throw out the traditions that help us to emphasize the truth and help us to teach the truth. And yes, it's true that sometimes traditions can get in the way of people understanding and practicing and living out the truth. But where it's not that case, traditions are not always bad. As a matter of fact, if you've done any reading in recent years about the church and what's going on in the church in America, and for that matter, beyond America, you know that the younger generation is gravitating back toward the churches that are very liturgical and gravitating back toward the churches with great traditions. And the reason is because they live in a world that is filled with upheaval. They live in a world that is constantly changing. As soon as you buy something, it's already out of date, and something newer is coming down the line. And they're gravitating back to the liturgical churches and gravitating back to tradition because it's something that's stable. It's an anchor that keeps them secure. It's something to hold on to. It's something that isn't moving and isn't changing. Am I suggesting that we go back to all the liturgy of the church or that we go back to all of the traditions of the church? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you ought to stop. Churches ought to stop and ask the question before they remove a tradition, why is this tradition here? And is this tradition beneficial? We don't just throw it out because something new and what we think is better has come along. One of the new ways of doing ministry in church today is they do away with the preaching of the Word of God. And now we have discussions, and now we ask questions, and we have responses, and there's no preaching of the Word of God. First of all, preaching of the Word of God is a truth that is laid out in the inspired Scripture that is required in His church. But that tradition of preaching the Word of God is something from which we should never get away because it is God's method for communicating His Word. But we're looking for something new. We're trying a different way. We've got to go about it in a different way when tradition sometimes is the very stability that people need. I was watching a little bit of the 151st British Open yesterday. They don't call it the British Open. They just call it the Open. We call it the British Open to distinguish it from the United States Open. But if you watched any of that, and probably not many of you did, but if you watched any of that, you know that around the 18th green they have these uh, enormous stands that they have erected so that they can fill them up with thousands of people to watch that closing hole. And to one side, to the left-hand side, they have this huge yellow scoreboard where they, you can see the names of the players and you can see their scores and where they stand in relationship to the tournament. And it's all manual. You have to change the letters. Some human being has to go and change the letters, has to change the numbers. Today, in most of the golf tournaments that you would go to, they have electronic boards. They have screens, and they project all kinds of information about the players as they're coming to the next green, and they're telling you all about what's gone on in his round and what's going on, uh, on, on that particular hole. And it's, it's fascinating. It's all wonderful, and it's all good. But the commentator said, 
I hope they never do away with that tradition. A manual scoreboard where human beings have to change the letters of the name and have to change the numbers. What was he saying? Not all traditions are bad. But when the Apostle Paul here talks about traditions and you've kept the traditions, he's talking about more than customs. He's talking about more than just simple ideas or he's talking about more than methods that might be used. He's talking about the truth that he's been communicating. He goes on in verse 3. He says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is is God. Let's stop again for a moment. The word that's translated head three times, it refers to leadership and to responsibility. It has an aspect of authority that's implied. Today, the mental gymnastics take place over what this word head means. Some want it to mean source. They want it to mean origin rather than having to do with authority and submission. But The modern-day lexicographers, those who study the languages, have rejected that idea of the word head when it comes to origin or to source. And, And they're telling us that this word means exactly what we've always thought it means. It has something to do with responsibility. It has something to do with leadership. It has something to do with authority. It has something to do with submission. Verse 4. He says, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head, his authority. Praying and prophesying with your head cover, covered dishonors his head. By the way, this may be the place, this could be the place where we learn the tradition of why men take their hats off when they pray or men take their hats off when they go inside a building. Maybe this is part of the place where that's learned. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Some things to note here. Both men and women participated in the services in the manner of praying and prophesying. There are some interpreters of Scripture who say that this praying and prophesying was something that took place outside the meeting of the church. But that's not the consensus opinion. It's not my opinion of what's being said here. It was that in the church there were those who prayed, women and men who prayed, and there were men and women who prophesied. But please hear me. Prophesying is not the same as what I'm doing here today. What I'm doing here today is restricted by 1 Timothy chapter 2, and what I'm doing here today is restricted by 1 Timothy chapter 3. What he's talking about here when he talks about prophesying is that God has given to someone a message that needs to be communicated to the church, and if somebody's been given that message, then they're given the right man or woman to deliver that message, but they have to do it in the right manner. A man with his head uncovered, recognizing that Christ is his authority. A woman with her head covered, recognizing that her husband is her authority. So that she's communicating the message, and you should understand about prophecy. 
when it's talking about receiving something from God so that it can be delivered to the people. First Thessalonians chapter five, Paul says, don't despise prophesying. When you get to chapter 14, he prescribes specific things related to the delivery of prophecy. The scriptures were not completed. They didn't have the Bible like you and I have in their hands. There were times when God communicated things to individuals. But whenever somebody gave a prophecy, man or woman, doing it in the proper order that God prescribed, it always had to be evaluated by the prophets. It was never just simply taken at face value. They were to listen to it and compare it to the traditions, to the truth that they already knew. They were to listen to it and compare it to the, uh, the doctrine of the apostles. They were to look at it and compare it to the way and to the will of God. Because anybody can stand up and say, I've got a message from the Lord that he wants us to hear. As a matter of fact, over the course of my life as a minister, I've had people do that on many occasions. They don't do it in that particular way, but they'll come to me and say, the Lord has told me, and then they say whatever it is the Lord has told them. I don't know if you know what that really is. That isn't, Pastor, we want to hear from you, and we want your perspective and your wisdom on it. That's a stiff arm. I, I, I don't really want to hear from you. I just want you to affirm that what I've decided to do, I'm, I'm going to do, because the Lord has already told me. And when you say the Lord has told me, I mean, that's a little bit difficult for me to say, well, <laughs> I have a precedence over the Lord. You should hear me out over the Lord. But in this New Testament church, before the completion of Scripture, this faith that was once for all delivered to the saints and recorded for us in the inspired word of God before it was completed, sometimes there were messages that God wanted delivered. And there were women in the service that prayed. We have ladies that sometimes pray in our services. The gift of prophecy is not as active today, if active at all uh, today, because we have the completed word of God. But they didn't have that, and there were times when God communicated, and their message had to be evaluated as to whether it was the truth or not. But she was supposed to do it in a fashion that demonstrated her understanding of the order that God had placed in the church. The man without his head covered, the woman with her head covered, because it demonstrated something about their understanding of headship. It demonstrated something about their understanding of authority and submission. He goes on to say that if the woman prophesies with her head uncovered, she should just be shaved. That was something that would have brought shame to her. You've got to understand what's going on here. In 1 Corinthians, in the first, uh, first century society of Corinth, you, you've got people that... Uh, you, our couples, married couples, women that were married wore this veil, this shawl over their hair. And it was a demonstration that they were married and they had a husband and, and they understood the order of marriage, though in Roman society sometimes that marriage was despotic rather than biblical and loving and compassionate and kind as Christ loved the church. It wasn't the kind of of kind of, of, of love and marriage it should have been. But they wore it, and that veil got, brought them a measure of respect. 
because others recognized that they understood the role and the responsibilities that they had. And it brought them a measure of respect. But when they came to know Christ as their Savior, they heard the same truth that everybody else heard. There's no longer Jew nor Gentile. There's no longer bond nor free. There's no longer male nor female. And so some of the women said, we don't need to do this anymore. We can throw this off. It was the modern day equivalent of extreme uh, feminism. We, we can throw this off and we can do whatever we want when we go to church. And Paul says, nothing doing. When you come to church, there is to be order in the church. And the way you demonstrate that order is the way you recognize who is your head. And when you come, you come and you follow those customs. And if you don't, you cut the hair off. Who was it that wore their hair short? It was the temple of Aphrodite prostitutes. They were advertising by cutting their hair short. They were, they were advertising their services by doing so, by not wearing the veil, by cutting their hair short. They were advertising their services. And Paul is saying it's a shame for a woman not to recognize that role that she has in the context of the church and in the context of her marriage. He goes on, verse 7. See, I told you this was a death wish. Y'all are looking at me like a bull looking at a new fence. Verse, verse 7. Excuse me, verse 6. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, as it was for those temple prostitutes, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Chronologically, she came after man. Constitutionally, she was made for man. God made man from the dust of the earth. He looked at him and said, this man isn't complete. He put him into a deep sleep, took a rib from his side. He made for him, fashioned for him a woman, brought her to him. And the two of them, complementing each other, complete one another. You need each other. You need each other. Verse 9, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. But notice... He goes on, verse 10, for this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Please notice the symbol. In today's society, recognizing order in the church and recognizing order in the home isn't shown by wearing a veil. I know churches where there are women who do that still, some that wear hats rather than veils. They still cover their heads. I'm not arguing with them if that's what they wish to do. But in every culture, in our culture, maybe in our culture, the way that we recognize and demonstrate, we understand the order that God has created is we do it by a lady taking on the man's name, his last name. Or the way that we wear our wedding rings, which I don't have one on, so. Well, the way that we wear our wedding rings or some other tradition that demonstrates that we understand what God is saying and that we're obeying the Lord in this matter. He goes on to say, but not only is there headship, but I want you to notice in the church and in marriage, there's partnership. 
Because while it's true that man was created first and woman was created from man and for man, notice verse 11, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. I don't know if you know this, but since Adam, every other man has come through a woman. I wasn't uh, created from the dust of the earth, and neither were you. You came through your mother, right? And so where there is headship, there is partnership. Paul is simply saying, I'm not talking about this despotic kind of of, uh, authority and submission that's in the Roman world. Where there's headship, there is partnership. As a matter of fact, in the home, the apostle says, the apostle Paul says to husbands, we ought to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Do you understand what that means, men? That means we would be willing to sacrifice anything, even ourselves, for the sake of our wives. And wives are to support their husbands and strengthen their husbands and help them in the role of leading in their families that God has given to them. And men, you're going to answer to God for your family before anybody else answers to God. Because you are the head of your family. He goes on, verse 12, For as woman came from man, even so man also come through woman, but all things are from God. And then he finishes out, Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? The answer is obviously no. Does not even nature, now he moves from creation itself, how God created Adam and Eve, he moves to nature to to prove his point. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Women in that day wore their hair long. Men wore it short, probably not like my short But they wore their hair shorter. There was a different style. There was a distinction between the sexes. There was no blending of the sexes. They understood that distinction. Today, that would mean something different. Men may have some longer hair than some women, and some women have different styles than men. But there's to be no blending of the sexes. He goes on and he says, But if anyone seems to be contentious, We have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. You say, okay, pastor, my eyes are open as probably as wide as they have been all summer long, and my ears are attentive, and I have been indoctrinated and taught something completely different than what you're talking about. It's not taught in the culture around us, and I'm really, really uncomfortable with what you're telling me at this moment. I get it. I get it. But my role as a pastor is not to skip passages just because they're hard or they don't fit the culture. My role as pastor is to unfold the scriptures before you to the best of my ability so that we can follow what the Word of God says. So let me zoom out for a moment. And let me give you three very important thoughts for you to consider as you think about this passage of Scripture and you try to get a grasp in your mind about how it is so antithetical to the ideals of the world in which we live today. And the first is this, that in the church, God is a God of order, not confusion. 
What is God telling us in these verses of Scripture? He's reminding us that he is a God of order, not of confusion. This passage is about order in the church. And God is a God of order. Will you just look over to chapter 14 for a moment? 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Will you look at verse 33? He says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Or down in verse 40, Let all things be done decently and in order. God is a God of order. Whether it's in creation, whether it's in the human body, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the home, God is a God of order. And when there is disorder, it is the presence of the curse of sin. Think with me for a moment about creation. I believe God created everything in six literal days, just as we read in the book of Genesis. Think about this marvelous order that we find in creation. Because the earth is tilted on its axis, we're able to enjoy the different seasons of the year, summer and winter and spring and fall. Because our earth spins on its axis at approximately 1,000 miles per hour, that is at the center of the earth, the circumference of the earth, if it rotated 100 miles per hour, our days and nights would be 10 times longer. That would mean the summer sun would burn all vegetation and the winter's nights would be impossibly cold. God's a God of order. The earth on which we live is exactly at the right distance from the sun for life to exist on earth. If it were farther away, it would be too cold for us to live here. If it were a little bit closer, it would be too hot for us to be able to live here. The earth is the exact right distance from the moon. The moon's an average of 238,855 miles from the earth. And the gravitational pull from the moon causes the ocean tides that cleanse the shoreline and clean out the shipping, the shipping lanes, the shipping channels. If the moon were 50,000 miles from the earth, the gravitational pull from the moon would be so great that the ocean tides would submerge much of the surface of the earth two times per day. Even in the atmosphere around us, there's 21%, approximately 21% oxygen. If there were more oxygen, a flash of lightning would cause almost inevitably a fire every time. And if there were less oxygen, there wouldn't be a fire at all. Now, you say, I'm a science teacher, and I dispute a couple of your figures there. Forget the figures there. Look at the order that is there. When you stop and you look up and you see the planets and you recognize that everything has been placed in order by the Almighty God and this earth on which we live has been placed here in direct, uh, in, in direct obedience to the order of the Almighty God, you can only come to the conclusion that God is a God of order, not of confusion. Think about the body itself. And I'm not going very far with this illustration because we have too many medical professionals, and I don't want to embarrass myself with any kind of instruction about anatomy. But think about the complexity of the human body. And think about how it all functions together and how it all works as a whole and how it's all functioning to help the other parts of the body. And the brain sends the signal and the heart beats and the arms and the legs move and the 
the, the oxygenated blood is pumped out to the various parts of the body to keep it alive. And you look at your body and you have to come to the conclusion there's order. Now, the older we get, it starts to look a little less orderly and a whole lot more disorderly, trust me. But the human body is a display that God is a God of order. What I'm trying to say is when we look around ourselves, if we look at what God has done, we recognize that God is a God of order and God intends for his church to be a place of order and he intends the home to be a place of order. But have you noticed society? Have you just watched society? Just watching the news breaks my heart anymore. There's confusion in the home. There's confusion in our culture. There's confusion in our churches. There's confusion in morality. There's confusion in all of these different aspects of life. But God is not the author of confusion. Where does confusion come from? It comes from the curse of sin. That's where confusion comes from. And where we stop obeying God and where we stop doing what his word says and where we stop following the dictates of scripture and where we decide we're going to do it a different way because it doesn't fit with what we think we would like to do, the end result is we introduce confusion into the church. And confusion exists in too many of our churches. God set up his church to function in an orderly fashion and to do so he prescribes order within the church. Every company has order. Every family, if it's functioning properly, has order. Every team that you play on, there is a, there is a measure of order in that team. There, there's a recognition of authority and submission. There is order in that team. In every other aspect of life where there is success, there is order that takes place because God is the God of order. And think, if you will, with me what the illustration is that he gives us here. The Trinity itself is orderly. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're not three separate gods. This is one God in three persons. All three members of the Trinity, all three are co-equal and co-eternal. All three possess all the same divine attributes as the other members of the Trinity possess those divine attributes. But all the members of the Trinity have a different function within the order of the Trinity. Who was it that said, I've come to do the will of my Father? It was Jesus Christ, and aren't, you, aren't we thankful that he came? Aren't we thankful that he gave his life for us on the cross of Calvary? And, and what is the function of the Holy Spirit? John 16 says, it is to point people to Jesus. Is Jesus less than the Father? Is he inferior to the Father? Is the Spirit of God inferior to the Son because his job is to point people to the Son? No! This is not about superiority and inferiority. This is about order. This headship and there's partnership and the two together must work to create the order that God intends within his church. Number two, in the church, men and women are equal but have different functions 
to fulfill. In verses 2 to 6, Paul defines the principle of headship. In verses 7 to 16, he defends the principle from creation and from nature. There's a whole lot of confusion in our society today about what God says about men's and women's roles and their functions in the church and in the home. So let me just take a moment. Let me remind you that what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is order in the church. What he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 5 is order in the home. He's not addressing men and women's roles in society in general. Paul was not a chauvinist. He did not have toxic masculinity. He is the one who said there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Gentile or Jew. He is the one who says that the man is not independent of the woman, nor the woman independent of the man. He understands there has to be partnership, but he also wants us to know and understand for functioning purposes there has to be headship. Confusion is introduced into the church when people reject God's plan for order and function. And today there are all kinds of avenues to infiltrate our churches to get us confused and to cause us to leave God's structure of order. You can start with entertainment, the movies and television and the uncritical eye that watches whatever is there and allows your children to watch whatever is there. There's peer pressure, people putting pressure on us, wanting us to conform to what the world around us says is the norm, what should be the norm for all of us. There's education, and not certainly in every aspect of education, but in education, there is this constant move to move Christians away from what the Scripture teaches about these matters related to the church and related to the, related to the home. Just to give you an illustration of that, I, I want to read to you something from Rosaria Butterfield. I've used her name before and quoted from her before, but let me just refresh your memory for a moment. Because you got kids that are going off to college, you better listen to what Rosaria says. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured English professor at Syracuse University. She was the head of the women's studies department. Did you know that sometimes your daughters get involved in the women's study departments? She was the head of the women's study department. Uh, she was writing books and she was writing articles related to the various theories related to lesbianism and homosexuality. She was a lesbian herself. She was in a long-term relationship with her lover. They owned two houses together. They were animal rescuers. Not that that's a bad thing. They were animal rescuers. And she was writing an article on occasion... She wrote an opinion piece, actually, on an occasion where she got a lot of mail, some that was opposed to her, filled with hate, and some that was in favor of her and giving her praise. But she got a letter from a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor by the name of Ken Smith, and he asked her some questions that nobody had ever asked her before. And he invited her to come and to sit down with he and his wife and to have discussions around the dinner table, invited in other community, uh, other believers from the community to come in and be at that dinner table together and to talk together and to 
interact with one another in a respectful manner, in a respectful fashion with one another. And to make the story, story this long story short, she ends up becoming a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It didn't take weeks. It didn't take months. It took a long time. But she became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. She left her lesbian relationship. She will end up, she has ended up marrying a Presbyterian pastor and they pastor a church today and they have their own children and they have their own family. She's written three or four books, three of them I've read. Two of them are about her testimony and her life and the change that Christ has brought. One of them is about being hospitable in your community. It was given to me by a friend about being hospitable in your community and welcoming people into your home so that you can win them to Christ. But in her first book, it's entitled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I should be able to remember that. My mind goes blank sometimes. The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert She's writing about her days as the leader of the women's department. Listen to what she says. As a feminist scholar, this concept, worldview, was the most important concept in my intellectual arsenal. By the way, everybody looks at the world through a worldview. That's why we emphasize a biblical, Christian, Christ-centered worldview Worldview, she says, is important. That's how you look at the world. She goes on, worldview is central to feminist studies and to any field of study that analyzes oppressed or marginalized peoples. It helps us to understand how interpretations come from the frames of intelligibility that we used to look, that we use to look at the events that matter. She goes on, critical perspective asserts that we make meaning out of our lives, not by personal experience, but by the frames, the worldview through which we filter that experience. On my Women's Studies 101 syllabus, I wrote this about critical perspective. The letters NB, nota bene, meaning note well. And this is what she says to her students. Students are expected to write all papers and examination essay questions from a feminist worldview or critical perspective. In Spanish class, you speak and think in Spanish. In women's studies, you speak and think in feminist paradigms. Examination essay questions uh, written from critical perspectives outside of feminism will receive an automatic grade of F. Papers written from critical perspectives outside of feminism will be allowed one revision. Any student who is unable to write and think from a feminist critical perspective or worldview with a clear conscience should drop the class now. And then she says, how did I get away with this? The secular academic world is bold in its protection of worldview. And I and all my feminist colleagues put this statement on our syllabi. We worked as a block. We comprised an interpretive community. An interpretive community consciously and intentionally protects its way of thinking. This is how important worldview is to education of all stripes and colors. And this is how important interpretive community is to worldview. We do not make meaning in isolation. And in the process, she was indoctrinating women. Some of them, I'm sure, Christian women who came into the church and who said, wait a minute. 
What I've been learning and what I've been taught and what I've learned in this, uh, this school of higher education doesn't match with the Bible. The Bible's out of date. Throw it away. Let's do what the new thinking is. The result of that kind of thing going on for a long time, by the way, has resulted in men being lost in our society. Masculinity getting lost in our society. Another author that I read a good bit is Dr. Roger Olson. He's a theologian. Uh, he speaks about the philosophy of religion. I don't agree with him on every aspect of his theology. But I read just this past week, as I was thinking about this message, an article that he wrote. And this is what he said. For years, I've been advocating for greater social attention to the needs of men and boys, most of whom are struggling to find their place in the world. I have suffered ridicule and harsh pushback. Masculinity is now a dirty word. Toxic masculinity is now one word. Boys and young men are falling behind girls and young women in education. Males continue to die at a higher rate than females in every age group. He goes on now, the prestigious Washington Post has published a lengthy and compelling opinion piece by an African-American feminist scholar entitled, Men Are Lost. Here's a map out of the wilderness. He goes on, the author is Christine Emba, and her column was published by the Post on July the 10th, 2023. Male privilege is no longer the thing it once was. Patriarchy is all but dead. The women's movement has succeeded for girls and women. The unintended consequence has been the fall of boys and men into societal neglect. And then he asks three questions. Don't believe me? Question me? Doubt me? Then read the Washington Post column for yourself. So I did. It was long. And some of it was good and some of it wasn't good. But she acknowledged that in the process of getting away from the order of God, we have introduced confusion into society. And introducing confusion into society brings it right into the church because we think the church should be reflecting society rather than society reflecting the truth of Scripture that comes from the church. I'm not talking about you having to wear a veil over your head when you come in. As a matter of fact, I hope you don't do that. I'm not telling you you have to wear a hat, ladies, when you come to church. I'm not saying to you men, this means you're now the sovereign of your house. You're now the master of your home, and you can walk in and demand what you expect. That's not biblical manhood, and that's not biblical womanhood. That doesn't even look like the scriptures in what they teach. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite authors is Dr. Warren Wiersbe. He says, in my ministry in different parts of the world, I've noticed that the basic principle of headship applies in every culture, but the means of demonstrating it differs from place to place. The important thing is the submission of the heart to the Lord and the public manifestation of obedience to God's order. And hear me, I'm not trying to solve societal's issues, society's issues. We're talking about what he says to the church. We're talking about what he says to the home. God is a God of order, not confusion. Men and women are equal. 
but have different functions to fulfill. And thirdly, as we zoom out one more time, God is serious about unity in the fellowship. I don't have time to develop this, but in verse 10, we're, we're not to act contrary to God's instructions. Why? Because the angels are watching. Do you realize that there's angels watching this service today? They understand headship. They understand submission. They understand the attitudes of our hearts. As we come into the presence of the Almighty God, they understand it well because they are under the headship of the Almighty God. And I don't know where they are. They're in the spirit realm, and you can't see them. Or maybe it's just the pastor's the angel. It would be the fallen angel if that were the case. But there are angels amongst us, and he says we're not to act contrary to God's instructions. The angels are watching. In verses 13 to 15, he says we're not to create confusion by our actions. When a woman prays or when a woman was to prophesy in that first century church, she was to follow the customs of that day that demonstrated that she understood the order of the Almighty God. And finally, in verse 16, he says, we're not to be contentious about this issue. Look at it one more time, verse 16. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom. Nor do the churches of God. So, Pastor, how do I apply this to my life? I'm going to give you four thoughts, and I'm going to be finished. Are you all with me so far? I will be standing at this door afterwards if you're looking to shoot me or stab me. (laughs) Application number one, pray for your church daily. Pray for your church daily. Every day you should ask God to help your church to stand for the truth, to do it in the spirit of Christ, to live in love like Jesus. Every day you should pray for your church because the church is, I don't mean these buildings, I don't mean these properties, this body that, can, that, that comprises this family called Lewis Memorial Church. We should pray for the church every day that we would be strong in the truth and we would stand in the truth. We should pray every day that even when society is moving away from the truth that we would stand true. And it's not easy, is it? We have young people who go and they share their thought or their idea in a public forum and the cancel culture cuts them off, calls them filled with hatred. Some of you may call me filled with hatred. That's not at all my attitude and that's not at all my spirit. My attitude and my spirit is to know what God's word says and to do it and not compromise it so that it accommodates the society around us. We're calling the world to Christ. We're not not bringing the truth of Scripture and accommodating it to the society in which we live. We're not supposed to be reinterpreting God's Word to fit and be acceptable. We're supposed to be preaching it as the truth. And every day it gets harder and harder and harder And you need to pray for your church daily. Number two, you need to ground yourself in the Scripture. 
It's time for us to stop being blown about by every wind of doctrine because we as believers in Jesus don't know what the Scripture says. Why don't we know what the Scripture says? Because we don't read it. We don't study it. We don't come to church to hear it. We don't go to life groups to learn it. We don't find out what the Scripture says. We've got to do more than just study the Scriptures. We've got to learn how apologetically to be able to argue our point and to make it in a cogent fashion so that even if people disagree, they at least understand that our argument is sound. Ground yourself in the scripture. You cannot expect the church, the youth group or the children's ministry, you cannot expect them to do in an hour or two a week what a school can do in many hours a week or what peer pressure can do in a 24-hour period of time. The only people who have the kind of access to their children's hearts that can ground them in the truth of Scripture are moms and dads. And we can supplement it and we can help you, but moms and dads, you've got to ground yourself in the Scripture so that you're speaking the truth of the Word of God to your children. And number three, you've got to teach your children the truth. You say, well, if I do that and they ever happen to slip and say it, it's going to get them in trouble. It's not going to get easier, friends. Standing on the authority of this book is going to get harder. But we have to teach our children the truth. What does he say in Deuteronomy chapter 6? When your children get up in the morning, when they go through the day, day, when they go to bed at night, you teach them the word. You're constantly applying the scripture to their lives. Every aspect, if they're playing a ball game, if they're at a dance recital, they're in a theater production, if they're sitting in front of the television set or you take them to the mall to shop, you're constantly looking for opportunities to teach your children the, the scriptures, what it says, and why you believe that way. Number four, finally, you've got to share the gospel everywhere. The only hope for the world around us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you realize the unbelieving mind cannot accept the truths of the Word of God? What I don't understand is how the believing mind doesn't accept them. But the unbelieving mind doesn't accept the truths of the Word of God, and they're never going to be able to fully comprehend them until they come to a saving faith in Jesus, and the Spirit of God begins to enlighten them to the truth of Scripture. I think of Rosaria Butterfield. She came to the scripture again and again and again and again, and God opened her heart. She became a believer in Jesus Christ. He reformed her life. He didn't reform her life. He transformed her life. He transformed her life, and she's now a living testimony of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ because in spite of what some people think, God can change people. And we have to share the gospel. Dear friends, do you know the gospel? Are, are, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? You say, I don't, I don't get anything you're saying, preacher. Just, I mean, you, you're up there talking about something that's so antiquated. I mean, that's, that's like a 2,000 years ago. What, what are you preaching that today? This is 21st century society. Because God's word never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God. And I believe everything it says from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21.
And my task and your task is to understand it. But understand me, you will never grasp the deeper things of the Spirit of God until you have the Spirit of God living within you. And that doesn't come until you trust in Jesus as your Savior. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, today's the day for you to open your heart and say, Jesus, save me.